0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Stefan Irish to the podcast. Stefan is the Polanski Fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute, and the author of a terrific new book called Justifying Genocide, Germany and the Armenians from Bismarck to Hitler. The book is a comprehensive and insightful look at what Germans knew about the Armenian genocide, when they knew it, what they wrote and said about it, and how what they wrote and said mattered. It's a wonderful book, full of colorful quotations and insightful asides. And I'm looking forward to talking about the highlights of the book with Stefan. And so with that, Stefan, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Hi, thank you
1: for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So let's start out. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, about your background, how you came to be a historian, um, and a historian interested in, in, in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire in Germany.
1: Um I studied history in uh, uh, Berlin, and uh, uh, growing up in Germany, I was always interested in the various aspects of German history concerning its various minorities. Of course, you learn and read a lot about the Third Reich and the Holocaust, but growing up with many um, friends with Turkish and Southeast European backgrounds, I was very interested in that broader region. Um, and especially the history of the Ottoman Empire found very interesting. <clears throat> and um, I also worked for some time on Romanian and Moldovan history. Um, and lately it is Ottoman and modern Turkish history. And always connected with German and European history and more broader themes as well.
0: I, I see that you, you, you got a BA in, in- London and then came back to Berlin for your M.A. and then master, or PhD at Cambridge. How, how, how did that matter to you? What did it mean to you or how did it help you or, or shape you that you went back and forth to get your education?
1: Um, I still very much like uh, the British university system and I really enjoyed my time there. Basically, my time in Berlin was to um, slow down. Uh, the whole education process a little bit, so instead of going on from my BA to do an MA in one or two years, I took some time and did a little bit of area studies, a little bit of history, uh, and a little bit of languages in Berlin, and uh, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> hmm.
0: So, am I right? It's your first book that's at a Turk in the German imagination.
1: My first one in English, yeah. I had awesome. else, uh, on Moldovan history before
0: that. Oh, interesting. Um,
1: why Atatürk? Why Atatürk? Yeah. Um, Atatürk is a really towering figure for the modern Turkish Republic and modern Turkish identity. And um, actually, coincid- coincidentally, I came across um, the public discourse in the Third Reich, and um, I found a little bit of this adulation of the Nazis, uh, the, this fandom the Nazis displayed towards Atatürk. Mm-hmm. And um, later, when uh, I was doing my, uh, when I was starting to do a PhD, I wanted to investigate that further, and this actually opened up uh, a totally different and unexpected, um, yeah, political um, um, spectrum for the 1920s and 30s, and something that was hitherto really unknown. And um, I was really surprised to find out what I did find out. <laughs>
0: And so then you moved on to to the Armenian Genocide and the way it's perceived and discussed in Germany. Why did you decide to move there for your next topic? Uh,
1: It was also a little bit a side uh, um, Ah. project, actually, um, of the Ataturk project. When I was Mm -hmm. looking at uh, German public discourse in the newspapers, um, especially in the 1920s, there was a lot of uh, debate also on the Armenian Genocide. And um, Mm -hmm. the research literature... There was always this suggestion that Germany did not talk about the Armenian Genocide or even that um, the fact that Germany didn't come to terms in the 1920s after the First World War, that Germany didn't come to terms with the Armenian Genocide and its own role in it, that this, in fact, was a signal for uh, the Holocaust. And... um, um, As I went along uh, reading these uh, newspapers and uh, reconstructing public discourse for my book on Ataturk, I found more and more articles on the Armenian genocide, and I was very surprised. And then uh, putting it all together actually is what I uh, call in my book on the Armenians now, the great German genocide debate. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's quite the opposite actually of not coming to terms with it. Actually, Germany, I think, was home to one of the largest, if not the largest, genocide debate to date before the uh, Holocaust.
0: So so if that's the kind of core of the book, why do you start with... So turning to the book, if that's the core of the book, why start with Bismarck? Well, you could
1: say uh, German modern German history always starts kind of with Bismarck. <laughs> but um, in this case... I think it's interesting because um, Bismarck's time, that's also the time when the Armenians enter the, let's say, public consciousness of the world um, around the Congress of Berlin and the Treaty of Berlin. This is kind of the time when the Armenians become really an international um, topic. And um, what is interesting about Bismarck's time is that uh, certain policy, you could say traditions that become much more uh, important in the 1890s and afterwards already um, are being developed and being pursued. Um, and we, we know that uh, the Ottoman Empire was an ally of Germany in the First World War. And um, we might also know that only really shortly before the Ottomans entered the war, there was actually a formal alliance. But already since Bismarck's time, some sort of informal or quasi alliance uh exists and um it's also starting with bismarck's time the germany let's say official governmental political germany adopts a very cynical attitude uh vis-a-vis the ottoman armenians uh, so
0: bismarck and um and, and and the foreign political policy officials of of the right adopt a certain set of attitudes and policies toward the Ottoman Empire in Armenia. Um, Why, how do they see the Ottoman Empire being useful to to this new Germany? And what role, how does that uh, uh, place a set of roles, or what does that mean for the Armenian question?
1: Well, on the one hand, uh, Bismarck tries to divert um, tensions in Europe away from the center to the periphery. And in this respect, the Ottoman Empire seems very helpful, and to some extent, Bismarck is also willing to give away um, parts and uh, parts of the Ottoman lands to other European powers to kind of satisfy various hungers and ambitions. But on, at the same time, in order for the Ottoman Empire to fulfill this kind of uh, function, um, it has to... Continue to exist in some fashion, so that there uh, wouldn't be a all out, an all-out European war over the Ottoman spoils. So this is the one thing uh, Bismarck kind of has this grander European vision in which the Ottoman Empire can be useful. At the same, uh, at the same time, there's also a growing interest as time uh, um, moves along in the Ottoman Empire as something of a partner, because uh, Germany is uh feels in encircled in by France and Russia um and doesn't have many uh partners in Europe. And this is a this is a, the the broader context and the Armenians are kind of a nuisance, um an obstacle, but also a chance for Bismarck's Germany already. Um not speaking out for the Armenians can help the German Empire to become closer to the Ottomans. And this already starts under Bismarck and is very pronounced then in the 1890s and um, also, of course, later on. So,
0: and so, yeah, go ahead,
1: sorry. And, and this is not only the historian now, um, um, you know, seeing something in the times that people at the time perhaps were not able to see or saw differently. Um, thinkers of empire, German thinkers of empire and uh, political thinkers, um, after the uh, massacres in the 1890s, um, about which we probably uh, want to speak a little bit too, these mm-hmm. thinkers already uh, uh, said that um, Germany's position in the Middle East, and the Ottoman Empire, was actually bought um, with Armenian blood. <laughs> so this German silence, which is a very active silence, you could say, has a very uh, deep political meaning, and um, Germany hopes and actually is able to uh, be rewarded for the silence in Armenian matters.
0: Sure. Um, you talk about active silence, and, and you mentioned the, the the massacres of the eighteen nineties. To what extent are those massacres known about in Germany, and how do Germans respond?
1: <clears throat>
0: so um, these massacres they took place
1: from eighteen 18- uh, 1894 to uh, 1896, for three years um, there were a series of pogroms and massacres in various localities in the Ottoman Empire, also in Constantinople. And um, the reception in Germany, there's, there are always two broad groups, you could say, or groupings. Yeah. On the one hand, you have pro-Armenian activists, mostly from um, protestant missionary circles who are deeply involved in uh, missionary work in the uh, in the near east and on the other hand you have um very strong factions of nationalist pro ottoman um yeah politicians and newspapers especially so it is at the beginning is always these uh pro armenian activists mostly these protestant uh, missionary circles who try try to uh, create awareness who tried to publish reports of these massacres, uh, analyses, uh, witness accounts, and so on. And then you have already, from the beginning of these massacres, uh, pro-Ottoman and also quasi-German governmental uh, public opinion and press, which tries to minimize these massacres, justify whatever is happening, and uh, tries to smear and silence the pro-Armenian sections of the press.
0: Hmm. Um. Well, one of one of the points you stress. So you, you talk about justification, um, and that's a word we're going to come back to later in in, in a later debate. Um, one of the things you stress is is the way in which German conceptions of Armenians become racialized in and after this period. Um, can you say a little bit about how? Germans talked about Armenians and and understood what it meant to be an Armenian during kind of broadly this period and then as it becomes more racialized?
1: Yes, this is uh, indeed a really important uh, part of the whole um, narrative that develops and uh, also of my analysis of it. Already from the 1890s onwards, there's this strong tendency to see the Armenians mainly in racial terms and not in religious terms. The Armenians were fellow Christians. Um, but if you look at the newspapers and other forms of public discourse in these years, in the 1890s, you will always find them uh, um, um, perceived through the uh, like either national or racial uh, prism. And there is this tendency um, also from diplomats stationed in the Ottoman Empire and others to see the Armenians as the Jews of the Orient. Uh, You have to remember, of course, that at at that time there weren't many Jews living in the uh, Middle East, Mm -hmm. but uh, the Armenians, especially in Anatolia and the Levant, were very present in the cities, but also in rural areas, of course. And uh, the view is actually, and also the discourse actually uh, about the Armenians, is kind of like a carbon copy of uh, modern anti-Semitism. Modern anti-Semitism, meaning anti-Semitism based on race rather than religion, the older version, and all these various racial stereotypes and also narratives which make up modern uh, racial anti-Semitism also... Uh, are being played out, are being used in uh, German anti-Armenianism, and um, it's very telling in these debates in the 1890s already that race and national stereotypes, national characteristics, become so important. I think it's also a way, especially for the pro-Ottoman voices, to to overcome the fact that uh, they are justifying or at least uh, justifying German silence, if it's not really justifying the Mm -hmm. violence against these Armenians, Mm -hmm. that they're talking about fellow Christians, actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, race is also very instrumental, I think, in these years, but it develops its own uh, logic and uh, dynamics afterwards. Because, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, outside these, let's say, more focused uh, debates about the Armenians and violence against the Armenians in the 1890s, There is, since the 1890s, of course, also growing literature on race, anthropology of race, and all these... uh, Mm -hmm. And as time again, as time moves on to the 1920s and 30s, the Armenians are an integral part of the debate around, for example, the Aryan thesis. So, the Armenians, they speak uh, uh, Indo-European language, and this whole of the Aryans rests upon a common language family, which then is transformed into a common racial family. And the Armenians, due to this logic, should be part of this racial family. However, already since many decades before, they've always been understood and described as being either um, related to the Jewish race or the Jews, or even being something of a parent race to the Jews. So the Armenians are always a bit of a puzzle for these racial theories, and they're always part and parcel of these discourses.
0: So where are the points of contact? In other words, to what extent are the people writing um, about the Armenians in this way? How are they getting their impressions of Armenians? How many Germans actually go to the Ottoman Empire and travel in the Armenian populated areas compared to how many of them are getting their ideas from uh, Ottoman officials or just from kind of travel reports or journalistic reports? How, How does that all play out?
1: I think the majority of Germans who talk about the Armenians and write about the Armenians have their knowledge indeed from travel reports and second and mm. third hand. Um there are some again some important people in these discourses who actually travel to um eastern Anatolia uh, for example where the uh, where Armenians live but they have a different view um because they also mm. meet Armenians who are farmers who are not in trade who are not rich but who are poor and um, this kind of helps uh, put them in a different position uh, than the others who rely on travel reports, mostly to cities where they portray the stereotypical Armenian tra- trader or merchant, uh, very rich living as they portrayed off the honest work of the Turks and so on. So, of course, there is a difference here, but um, it's very interesting to see how... Um, kind of closed this uh, anti-Armenistic uh, uh, discourses from early on, and how uh, um, conflicting experiences in um, people's own travels or in their reception of other people's texts uh, actually does not change the overall anti-Armenian hmm. discourse
0: in Germany. Interesting. Well, let's turn to World War One, uh, and maybe I could start by asking you, um, how much did the German government know about what was happening in to the Armenians and and
1: how did they know it? Yes, that's an interesting question. The short answer would be um, the German government was well informed and knew almost everything. I think there's no other government except for the Ottoman government um, that knew as much about the genocide in uh, progress as the German government. The Germans had a vast consular network still, um, they had their consuls all over eastern and uh, southern Anatolia. And um, from the first days and weeks of the deportations and massacres, these consuls write very detailed reports about what is happening. And most of them already from the beginning start pleading with their own ambassador and their own government to help the Armenians and to stop genocide.
0: So if they're communicating back to their government um, what kind of, and, and, and asking, at least to some extent, for help and assistance, what what does the government say in response? Well, the thing is,
1: they are not mostly uh, communicating directly with Berlin, Ah. with the government, Mm -hmm. but have to go through their ambassador in Constantinople. And until later in the summer of 1915, until then, the ambassador stays relatively pro-Ottoman and anti-Armenian. And even though his consuls send him reports of what is happening on the ground. He's distorting and disputing uh, whatever they are sending him and mainly transports to Berlin what is Ottoman propaganda in these first Mm -hmm. months. And these are the hot months of the genocide and um, his role there is very tragic uh, in this respect. However, and more in general, the German government is not willing really to uh, intervene for the Armenians Mm -hmm. when The German Chancellor, a few months later, uh, feels the pressure from various parts of uh, Germany, from his diplomats, uh, from these missionary circles who are well-informed, and others. He actually makes it very clear that uh, it's much more important to hold Turkey on Germany's side than uh, to intervene for the Armenians. Um, And he... Basically, plainly stated that it doesn't matter if Armenians die over this or not, and this is the un- unfortunate German role indeed hmm. uh, during World War One. Later on, after the summer of 1915, there there were some protests, but uh, very timid and very ineffectual. Germany was more concerned with the war as such and with keeping Turkey in play than uh, with. Uh, humanitarian concerns for the Armenians.
0: So what have all of this got into the newspapers? How much much could an average German have learned about what was going on?
1: Well, on the one hand, there was censorship. And um, Mm -hmm. it's been assumed until uh, now, actually, that during World War I, um, nothing really reached the German population and the newspapers. However... Um, while it is true that they couldn't have learned the full extent of what was happening, <clears throat> um, atrocity propaganda was a was an integral part of uh, of World War One uh, political culture on all sides. And um, when the Armenian genocide began, April 1915, and as it progressed, uh, German society was already uh, yeah well German public society the newspapers they were already engaged in a very uh, heated war with the Entente countries about various atrocity allegations, for example, what the German occupational regime in uh, Belgium uh, was doing. So when allegations came, you know, um, um, addressed to the Ottomans that they were massacring Armenians, the German press felt compelled to respond to, to de- defend the Ottomans as... Sections of the press had already done in the 1890s, for example, same kind of dynamics, <clears throat> but this time during World War one, of course uh, the pro armenian side was entirely lacking, so um, there was information about the Armenians. It was couched in this in propaganda terms, and it was part and parcel of this uh, atrocity propaganda warfare, basically. but um, German newspapers reacted. Um, especially in this first year, 1915, uh, of the Armenian Genocide. And um, again, it's e- either they wanted to minimalize or justify whatever was happening. And um, mm-hmm. one of these major discursive um, tools of justifying uh, and supporting the uh, justifying the violence and supporting the Ottomans was this image of an uh, Armenian stab in the back.
0: Mm-hmm. So it
1: was often uh, alleged that the Armenians, like, Um, that the Armenians were rising up against the Ottoman state and in the back of the Ottoman army, which was struggling against the Russian army. And um, basically as one concerted action, one concerted uh, uh, uprising, uh, threatening the survival of the Ottoman state as such.
0: So that kind of links maybe the the war and the the immediate post-war discussion. Uh, And maybe we can start that by can you to talk us talk to us a little bit i think it's johann lepsius i think i've got that name right can you talk about him and his role in the in the pre-war and wartime years and 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 then maybe what he's asked to do immediately after the war is done
1: yeah johannes lepsius is a very interesting oh, figure yeah. um, already in the 1890s um I always come back to the 1890s already. Back then, (laughs) he published a a big report on what was happening to the Armenians. This was actually a decisive moment in Germany where the general mood um, uh, for a moment at least became pro-Armenian. After being active during these massacres in uh, gathering information and setting up um, networks for the Armenians, for the survivors in Anatolia, he basically was pushed into a life of pro-Armenian activism. And he continued um, to look after Armenians in uh, various projects in Eastern Anatolia, but also to do publicity work in Europe. And again, uh, during the war, he traveled to uh, Constantinople, and he actually met Enver Pasha, one mm. of the three leaders of the Ottoman Empire at that time. He met him to uh, get him to stop genocide and um upon upon uh, returning back to germany he gave a lecture in german parliament mainly to the german press which of course couldn't use uh, uh, what he was telling them and he compiled another report based on his sources at the german embassy but also the american embassy on what was happening to the armenians and this report because there was censorship he sent out secretly to um reporters, parliamentarians, and also to all the German Protestant uh, parishes. So there was a section of elite uh, Germany which could have known very much about the Armenian genocide as it was happening. Um, but it, of course it was only after World War I that this could really be discussed in public. And here, as you mentioned, what is so fascinating about Lepsius and his role in this topic is that in 1919, the German Foreign Office um, tasked him to edit a volume of documents from the German Foreign Office uh, communication during World War I, a whole volume on, of documents on the Armenian Genocide. And mm-hmm. the, re- the reason for that is quite simple, and it goes back to, to really 1915. Germany was accused of being co-responsible or even the instigator of the Armenian massacres and um, the German Foreign Office became very nervous already in 1915 and began collecting documents showing actually that uh, they acted for the Armenians and tried to save them, which of course to that extent wasn't really true. So this um, volume of documents um, that Lapsius was tasked uh, to edit and publish uh, served the same purpose. It was mainly meant to address the the world and uh, the Entente countries who were gathered in Paris to decide uh, on the peace treaties. <clears throat> it was mainly meant to uh, free Germany of this allegation of being co-responsible or even the instigator of the Armenian Genocide. But this um, kind of backfired for the German Foreign Office. The book was published already in the summer of 1919, um And led to the first, yeah, the first uh, um, um, instances of the debate on the Armenian genocide in Germany. Already hmm. in this summer, German newspapers in uh, long editorials discussed what had happened to the Armenians, uh, with all different uh, aspects um, pertaining to genocide, intent, extent uh, of the genocide. Motivations, repercussions, and all the gory details of what happened to the Armenians.
0: So, so let's maybe we can pause just a moment um, and ask about word choices, because of course the word genocide has a particular kind of import in the world after um, the Genocide Convention and after Raphael Lemkin. What words are being used in this? kind of broadly speaking in World War I, by Lepsius in this discussion in 1919-1920, 19, 19, and maybe even before in the 1890s, what kind of German words are being used to describe these events? And are those words that are functionally equivalent to genocide, or are they more talking about these as as broad massacres or, or human rights violations or something like that? <clears throat>
1: Yeah, that's in, indeed um, very important. And, of course, the book and the narrative and the analysis has to deal with the counterclaim that it is um, um, uh, anachronistic to use the term genocide mm-hmm. before the mm-hmm. convention, of course, or before Raphael Lemkin uh, coined the term. However, um, when we talk about how the events during World War I were understood and discussed in post-war Germany... I think the label genocide is uh, uh, very uh, war- uh, well warranted. Um, the, the, the constructs they use in German at this time are either extermination, annihilation of a nation or of a race or of the Armenians. And um, the way they discuss these, uh, um, what happened to the Armenians, already after this publication of the German Foreign Office documents, is always that they're interested in the systematic um killing of Armenians. So Mm. for them it is very clear that this goes beyond massacres, spontaneous pogroms or anything of the like. And that is very different to what um world history knew up to this point. So Mm. it's like it's part and parcel of the description but also of the discussion and the analysis that these um, editorials and op-eds in these years uh, uh, contain. You ask about German terms. What is really interesting and fascinating, on the one hand, but in the in the long run not as important, perhaps, uh, is uh, in the 1890s already a similar language is used, hmm. not to the full extent, but it is. It marks one of the first um, times that the German equivalent term to genocide, "Volkermord," murder of a people. Uh, is used actually in the public realm in Germany. However, later on in the uh, 1920s, this is not a very common term and is not uh, widely used at that point. But as I said, the other constructions, mainly dealing with extermination, annihilation of a people, um, are very uh, similar, I
0: think. And
1: (laughs) I think um, the way... Um, what happened to the Armenians is discussed in these years. makes it very clear that it's a debate about genocide because, Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, it was also a debate um, about intent, motivation, and uh, all these things. It was about the nature of what had happened,
0: really. So you you suggest in your book that that the the aftermath of the killing of Talat um, and then the trial played a really critical role in the way this discussion evolved. So can you say a little bit about the trial and how it ended up and, and, and the way it, 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 uh, the people involved in the trial talked about the, the, the killing and why it happened?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, in 1921, Talak Pasha, one of the three leading men of the Ottoman Empire during World War I, was assassinated in Berlin in broad daylight in a crowded street, uh, shopping hmm. street and, um, what is interesting, we talked about 1919 and the publication of the foreign office documents afterwards. There was this short period of a few weeks, a few months when, um, this foreign office publication was discussed in the German press. Uh, people displayed outrage. There were some people already trying to minimize what had happened. But then <clears throat> a little bit later, there began this long year until early 1921 of a backlash where uh, especially pro ottoman and german nationalist papers tried to justify what had happened or just to uh, minimize uh, the extent of what had happened even though the german office for uh, foreign office documents were really clear on that and this um, this kind of dynamic between acceptance and then backlash uh, already played out in the 1890s and also during World War One, And um, now again, you could say, something rather at first external to the debate occurred that pushed the debate further, and this was now in early 1921, the assassination of Talat Pasha in Berlin, indeed. At first, again... <clears throat> Attempts to uh, portray him as a very uh, generous nationalist Ottoman uh, statesman, um, to minimize all the uh, things that were uh, alleged during World War One, and um, only gradually uh, the attempts to create a little bit of awareness about the Armenian connections. And then three months later, in the summer of 1921, his assassin uh, is on trial in Berlin. <clears throat> A young Armenian by the name of Solomon Telirian, and um, everything seems to be clear because he was uh, caught right after the assassination. He confessed uh, repeatedly to having assassinated Talat Pasha. However, um, again, the German Foreign Office, for example, is scared of this uh, trial that it turns into something political and more about the Armenians than about the assassination itself. Hmm. And um, so there is pressure to keep the trial short, for example. And it was short indeed. It only lasted one and a half days. <laughs> but it became one of the most spectacular trials of the 20th century, I guess, uh, definitely of the time and uh, in Germany, because at the end of it, so Montelirian, the assassin who confessed so many times to the uh, uh, deed, was acquitted and let go. And um, that's quite fascinating. And uh, even at the beginning of the trial, he's, he's, he acknowledged again, he said, yes, I killed Tad Pashdra. And this is kind of interesting, because it encapsulates already the whole direction of the trial. Um, <clears throat> he had a, a strange ally in the courtroom, the judge uh, who pushed from the beginning, pushed the trial towards uh, the Armenian genocide and the Armenian broader topic and so the trial from the very first minute becomes a trial about the Armenian genocide and Talat Pasha, the victim actually uh, becomes the perpetrator and uh, the defendant you could say actually huh. and um, um, Telerian's defense uh, has a lot of interesting people in the courtroom, Lepsius again as well, but also Armenians living in Berlin, survivors of the Armenian genocide, and also um, an Armenian bishop at the time in Manchester, um, who uh, tell the court, the jury, and uh, the press uh, all the gory details of what happened to them. And the courtroom uh, is visibly outraged, as is then the German public when these uh, uh, tales of horror and atrocity are reprinted in the German press. Hmm. So when Telerian is acquitted, the German newspapers, you can really feel that from the coverage, they gave the trial a lot of coverage. Um, The German newspapers are shocked and um, it takes Uh, the newspapers quite a long time actually to digest what just happened there. And um, the next days and weeks are filled again with editorials and op-eds discussing what happened in the courtroom, what happened to the Armenians again. They discuss the testimonies, they discuss again the motivations, the intent, extent of genocide and so on and so forth. And uh, still... Eight, nine months later, there are op-eds and editorials on the topic in the German papers. So this is really a huge event, and it's also really important because it pushes over all of the German uh, published opinion, all of the German press, uh, towards accepting this charge of genocide, of annihilation, extermination of a nation, uh, planned, intended, and executed by the Young Turk leadership. Even those papers, pro-Armenian, uh, pro-Ottoman and uh, a German nationalists who tried to deny whatever happened or the extent of what had happened uh, in the years before, even they now have to acknowledge that what had happened was something akin to genocide, to the murder of a nation. And this is quite fascinating, actually. The, the mood is so strong in this summer of 19, uh, 1921 that there's no other discursive option anymore huh. but but then again there is a large backlash and this is really uh, interesting now these nationalist hyper nationalist papers <clears throat> still want to make a point for the Ottomans, for the young Turk leadership and now they openly justify what even they acknowledge is genocide so then for months you have uh, arguments, discourses Printed in German newspapers, justifying genocide.
0: What? How much attention are other countries paying to to Armenia? What happened to the Armenians at this point? Is Germany unique, or unusual, or typical?
1: Um, in a way, Germany is typical. I think because um, uh, Germany is unique. I think because mm-hmm. Germany is um, uh, was was so closely closely involved with the Ottomans and was a, mm-hmm. an ally during World War One and had to fend off all these allegations of being uh, either the instigator or at least co-responsible for what had happened. And um, so I think the debate after World War One was more intense and there was more sustained interest, at least in the opinion makers in the newspapers. There was m- much more sustained interest in the topic than in other countries. Other countries, too, discussed the Armenians because... <clears throat> Um, they had been exposed to a lot of information on the Armenian genocide during World War One already to a much larger and detailed extent than uh, was possible in Germany. Germany was also catching up, you could say, with the rest of the world in these post war years and on the other hand um, yeah on the other hand, uh, other countries were mainly focused on the debates in Paris, what would happen to the Armenians at the Paris Peace treaty negotiations. Uh, whereas in Germany this was much more a domestic uh, topic, I would say, and um, it, it involved national sensibilities much more than in other countries.
0: <clears throat> so so in the last section of the book, you, you turn and, and you try and assess the degree to which um, this influenced Germans, in particular uh, right-wing Germans in, in the 30s and 40s and how it relates to, to the Holocaust. So so to what degree are members of the Nazi party and other people on the far right, um, how aware are they and how do they understand this debate and discussion about genocide in Armenia?
1: Well, the Nazi party, of course, over the 1920s and 30s undergoes a very uh, strong and fast uh, transformations when yeah. it comes to membership. But uh, when I was talking about this uh, about this great German genocide debate in the post-war mm-hmm. years from 1919 to 1923, these are, of course, also the years in which the Nazi movement comes into being. And um, I would argue that as a political movement, the Nazis grew up with these debates around the Armenian genocide. Um, it's interesting to note that even though the Nazis themselves were very interested in what was happening in Turkey at the time, after World War I, the Turkish War of Independence, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk fighting against uh, especially the Greeks. The Nazis were very interested in that and also in this figure, Mustafa Kemal Pasha. Um, they did not uh, contribute much on the debate about the Armenian Genocide directly. Mm-hmm. However, there was one very, I think, paradigmatic uh, uh, series of articles in one of the Nazi newspapers, <clears throat> in the summer of 1923 where um, the Nazis tried to formulate various Turkish lessons for Germany mm-hmm. and uh, one of the three key points was the uh, purification national purification as they called it and uh, this discussed the Armenian genocide as well as the Greek-Turkish uh, population transfer <laughs> later on and um here again, you have a very open uh, justification uh, of genocide. And uh, the same rhetoric is then a year later when uh, after the failed uh, Hitler Putsch of late 1923, next year there is the big trial of the uh, conspirators of the Hitler Putsch, the failed one. And there again, you have this open justification of uh, genocide when the Turkish model for the Nazis is discussed. And again, um, because we always we always uh, operate under the assumption that in the early 1920s the Nazis could not really have imagined exterminating the Jews, we have one um, contemporary newspaper reader, a German-Jewish author, who uh, in his book, which appeared two years later, in 1925, I think, who uh, responds to these articles about the Turkish role model and the discussion of the Armenians, and who writes there, if these Turkish lessons as the Nazis understand them, tied to Germany, it would mean the death of all the Jews. Hmm. So uh, there is something there, and there is of course much more. Um, as I sketched in my previous book, the Nazis were fascinated by uh, Ataturk and the new Turkey that followed after World War One, And in their in the Third Reich, they paint this rosy picture of a post General country of a post-genocidal wonderland, you could say, mm. where everything is just perfect and the nation is uh, um, active, revigorated, rebuilding itself um, is in their discourse, just wonderful. But it's always a precondition to uh, get rid of the minorities first if you uh, want to emulate this Turkish model. And this is a cl- very clear message that's transported in these uh, books and articles about the new Turkey and the Third Reich.
0: So you bracket the book um, with a discussion of a novel, actually, uh, Forty Days of Mustada, I think I pronounced that right, perhaps not, by Franz Werfel. Can you say something about Werfel and what he was trying to do with this novel and why, why you decided to, to, to both end and begin begin and end the book with him?
1: Well, his book is is very interesting and very special in this respect. So Werfel um, decided to write this already before he actually uh, um, uh, went into his hot writing phase. But uh, in late 1932, uh, um, writing this book and getting it published was very urgent for Franz Werfel. Franz Werfel is from uh, was from Prague. Um, very renowned uh, German author w- with a Jewish background. And um, he wanted to write this book, The 40 Days of Mustardar, this book about the Armenian genocide as a warning uh, to Germany, a warning against Hitler. So in late 1932, it was becoming clear that um, at least uh, Hitler being part of the government or the Nazis being a greater part in government and German politics uh, was on the immediate horizon, and um, Werfel wanted to finish his book uh, in time. He failed, of course, but he was already touring Germany in the winter 1932-33 uh, with um, uh, some chapters from the unfinished book. For example, um, the chapter in which Lepsius, whom we met um, meets Enver Pasha in uh, Constantinople and tries to get him to stop genocide. And it's very interesting that for even the reviewers of these uh, um, of Werfel, even for contemporary r- reviewers in the, this winter, mm. it is clear that uh, Werfel is used to address the Germans mm. and to warn them of the Nazis and of Hitler. So um <clears throat> I think it's, it's again, it's uh, build, building upon our preconceptions of the time about what people could have imagined uh, Nazism would mean for Germany and what it couldn't. I think it's very interesting and very important to realize that people like Franz Werfel um, thought that the Armenian genocide was um, something that was of immediate relevance to uh, Hitler coming to power in Germany. Hmm. And um, of course, <clears throat> this prism of uh, perceiving the Armenians as the Jews of the Orient and the whole fact that always when the Armenians were discussed in Germany, people were all, also discussing to some extent the Jews and the Jewish question in uh, Germany. This kind of gives, I think, Werfel's novel a uh, 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 very crucial importance uh, and is a very interesting window into, into, this time, into these times. <clears throat> and you said I also close my book with uh, Werfel's uh, uh, novel. This is also because this novel in the end didn't become a German or a Jewish novel. It became an Armenian novel, basically. Mm. Because for one, uh, Werfel failed to only published it in late 1933. And shortly after it was published in Germany, it was uh, uh, confiscated and uh, uh, forbidden. Um, but still, it had a, a quite a stellar career in the world. It was translated first into English, became a bestseller. It was also translated into Hebrew, Polish, and other languages. And, um, again, showing this connectedness. And actually, it's really, it's a Jewish-German context it in the Nazi imposed ghettos in, uh, East during World War Two, and
0: uh,
1: hmm. this was Franz saga about Armenian survival on the mountain uh, Musadah um, as their own story and they, they uh, saw themselves in Armenian shoes and reflected upon their situation through an Armenian perspective as well so I thought uh, it was very interesting uh, to realize how close the Armenian genocide was <clears throat> To the people in the Third Reich, in the uh, uh, in occupied Eastern Europe, uh, and during the Holocaust, even because um, it's this um, suggestion implicit in many um, historical books that the two—the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust—are separated by a great distance in time and space—and um, I think I d- uncovered some. Um, uh, actually much closer for the people, for these societies, uh, for the politics of the time. And I think that's something um, we, we will have to think about a little bit more. What, what does it mean if these two uh, great genocides of the 20th century are so closely connected, actually?
0: That seems an appropriate place to, to end. We've asked you uh, a lot of your time. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Uh, it's a wonderful book, I have to say. It's going to force me to sit down for an hour or two tomorrow and change the class preparation that I have for my class tomorrow afternoon. But that's a good thing, I think. Um, I always ask guests the last same last couple questions, and I'll ask you uh, first. Um, can you suggest one or one or two books or movies or? Or something that you would recommend to the listeners uh, that were important to you uh, through this project, uh, whether that's a memoir or a historical work, um, what should my listeners read or watch this weekend?
1: Yeah, uh, perhaps not surprising, indeed, I would actually suggest them to read Franz Werfel's 40 Days of Dagh. Mm. It's a bit mm. lengthy, and um, uh, the language, even in the English translation, is a bit uh, convoluted, convoluted perhaps at times. But it's a very interesting novel, and um, uh, some Israeli historians call it the first Holocaust novel, and I think that's hmm. what it is indeed, and um, huh. it's a very interesting piece of literature. I, think. I will have to put that on my reading list.
0: And then what are you working on now?
1: Um, well, I have a couple of projects. One of them deals with Enver Pasha, the uh, hmm. uh, leader of the uh, Ottoman Empire during World War I, I think one of the most fascinating uh, personalities uh, of the 20th century indeed um he's um really in in many uh, aspects all over the place he dies in central asia he fights as a, a um yeah muslim resistance fighter in uh, what is now libya uh, before <laughs> the first world war um he 's responsible for one of the greatest military disasters uh, of the Ottomans uh, during World War I. Um, he's just a fascinating figure that doesn't give up that almost always fails but always uh, comes back uh, to his feet uh, to his feet uh, even though he dies very young huh. and um, so far I think has been uh, under It hasn't been looked at uh, enough, really, in our historical uh, uh, writing and analysis.
0: That sounds like a great project. We've uh, taken a lot of your time. I hope when you're done with that, that you'll come back on the show and talk about it with us. Uh, But until then, thanks so so much for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Stefan Erich, author of Justifying Genocide, Germany and the Armenians from Bismarck to Hill. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I interview Uyur Umet Ungor about his edited volume, Genocide New Perspectives on Its Causes, Course, and Consequences. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.